Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I am Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have a pretty amazing dude on the show today. I forgot to tell him I say the word dude a lot. <laughs> but I, uh, I have a, uh, this guy. I saw a post and we've been connected for a while, but I saw a post where um, he was speaking on a Tony Robbins stage or at an event. And I was like, oh, my God, I got it. And I, I'm, I'm watching through some of this stuff and I'm like, OK, I got to get this dude on the show. And so I am excited to welcome my buddy Todd Hartley to the show. Todd, what is up, Ken? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Real nice to be here. Thank you. And I, I'm honored that you're on here, man. I, I know it's um, it's early in Arizona. This is how we do it. <laughs> so we have some people watching already. Thanks for everybody that shared this out, by the way. Really appreciate that. Um, Dave Ferguson, what's going on, brother? How you doing? So, so Todd, I started this show a couple years ago really to just give back and, and help people have a breakthrough in, in life and, and, um, so far, so good. I think we've had a, a lot of a lot of breakthroughs, but you have an interesting story from what I can tell, and I'm excited to hear it. So let's start with where you were born and raised. So I, I, I was uh, born at Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and I grew up in Manhattan Beach, so south of L.A., and I couldn't be luckier to grow up in a beach town, but more important than that, I got to discover some independence at an early age, find out what my passions were, which was photography and telling stories and everything just started to uh, fall into place. But for me, I struggled miserably until about 22 years old with uh, multiple learning disabilities that slowed my growth curve, but taught me resiliency. Wow. Really? So, so what was it like for you in school? Confusing. Was it really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was in all the slow kid classes. I, um, I was sharp and witty when I was interacting with kids on, on campus, but inside of the classroom, my attention disorders would kick in or my dyslexia and my interests would go out the window. And it took many years until I got help and was able to have my own of many breakthroughs. So, so did you end up going to, I mean, did you go to college and yeah, I actually, oh my gosh, I just got, I just got the chills thinking about this. I, <laughs> I overheard, I, I overheard a teacher in middle school tell my parents that um, you'll be lucky if he graduates from high school, but college is out of the question. And Ken, if you know anything about me, I defy odds. That's what I do. Wow. And it's, it was a rallying cry for me. I went to the university of Arizona and, uh, and was accepted to the nation's leading academic support program for students with learning disabilities and attention disorders. I mean, what an amazing blessing in my life because they unraveled me and taught me how to uh, ignite my passion and use that to pull me through and to come up with my own alternative learning techniques so I could be successful, which I use many of them still to this day. So, and this was going into college? You, yeah, you, yeah you, I actually didn't. It didn't all come together until about my last year and a half in college because I fought the advisors, meaning like I was that guy who was like, no, I'm good. I don't need your help. Like I was too cool for school guy. That was me. Yeah. And eventually when I got to be a junior, I looked around. I'm like, dude, if you want to pursue your passions, you might want to start listening to the people that for a living help people get through this problem. Yeah. How did you, how did you feel like, what age was this label given to you? What, how fourth grade, but in fourth grade, Ken, I shared the, uh, the teacher moved me to the teacher's desk. Okay. So I sat in what you would think I sat in front of row one with my chair and I used the teacher stapler. Like it was all right there. And I was humiliated and, and if wow. a girl from another class came in to like hand a note from the other teacher and I kind of had a crush on that girl, I would be devastated that she saw 
that I had to sit at the teacher's desk. It was, I mean, poor me, but at that time it was a legitimate concern. Sure. So you, uh, I, 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 the reason I ask is you, so you, you grew up with these labels and, and yep. uh, well, as Tony Robbins talks about the, the, the legs, our belief system, the legs are yes. the, the legs on the, t support the table. And, and so you had all of these legs metaphorically that were supporting this, this label that you had this, this massive learning disability. And, and it took me a long time to shed that, you know, I still yeah. uh, house a lot of humiliation from wow. those days. I, it was an, an important part mm -hmm. of my struggle. And uh, today I'm, I'm really fortunate. I'm on the uh, advisory board at the University of Arizona for the SALT Center. I teach a weekend workshop every semester for students. And now wow. that I've been doing this for, I don't know, four or five years, I'm starting to see the maturation of these kids as they're going through the process and igniting their passion about yeah. what they want to do. For me, that's worth everything in the world and worth all of the humiliation that I struggled with. Man, that's freaking awesome, man. So, so you... Um... You went to college. What did you get a degree? Did you graduate? I did. And from my junior year on, uh, I got all A's, one B. And but before that point, I only got C's and D's. And that maybe I got one B. I mean, the the world changed when I decided to take charge of my own life, and yeah. I decided to follow the advice from experts and then put in a daily commitment, the daily commitment of consistency to my education, to my personal growth, like a stone that's tumbling down the river to polish. I yeah. just started focusing on things like that. And before I knew it, I went from, two, uh, from about 22 years old of being somebody who couldn't read in front of others and wouldn't, uh, to being somebody by 26 who was reading on the number one station in Arizona in front of, I don't know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people at a given moment. And for me, that was like, as I'm reading this breaking news that somebody just hands me and I'm reading it live into the microphone while I'm reading the news, I'm saying, dude, can you believe you're reading in front of all these people right now? Like that stuff shouldn't happen. But right. if you stay consistent, your transformations will come. Right. Right. Did you struggle with, did you struggle with believing in yourself? Yes and no. I lived in two worlds. I lived in an academic world where I was way behind other people. Uh, and then I lived in a world where I could engage and communicate and interact and make friends like nobody else. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I, and I was a, uh, an exceptional athlete. So I lived in a couple of worlds of believing and not believing. And eventually those things came together, but you know, I was terrified. I didn't pass my university exit essay on, you know, the writing essay. I didn't pass that. I had to go take an additional class. And, um, but, you know, here I am. I'm in the process right now of writing a book. I have been a published author in a variety of newspapers over 20 years. I ran my own news site that, that where I wrote articles every day and had 36 million visitors a year on zero ad dollars. I mean, if the passion is strong, wow. you know this, you can get through anything if you have purpose. Yeah. Wow, man. That is okay. So, but college did not teach you this. I think it gave me reps. Repetition as Tony would say is the mother of skill. Yeah. Uh, where would I be if I didn't have the reps preparing for tests or right. if I didn't have the reps of going in and meeting a professor. I mean, back then, yeah. kids with learning disabilities, as um, progressive as universities claim that they are, back then, professors wanted nothing to do with special accommodations for anybody. Right. This, is, this is like right around the time that the social conversation was about Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, it was just a, it was just a bill living on Capitol Hill. And eventually, it got to that point while I was in school. And- Things changed, so uh, I they, the university thankfully uh, provided accommodations for students with learning disabilities, but 
the um, director of the SALT Center had to physically go to meet with teachers and argue with them uh, in defense of students like me. And thank God for Eleanor Harner and the work that she did in my life to make sure that I had access. And I was humiliated by this. Like I never told this story. And, um, and then I, oh dude, I told this story on the radio on KTAR in 1999. I'm like 26 years old or something. I'm not going to do the math. And, um, but I, I think I was like 26 years old. And so I tell this story on the radio and culturally learning disabilities at this point were considered an excuse. And in some cases in my life, I've used it as an excuse. I was using it as an opportunity to teach something larger with the audience. And my email just got filled with either hate mail or people saying, you know, that's all in your head and, uh, you know, whatever. And I just closed that door for maybe the next almost 20, uh, 17 years before I decided that I reached a point in my life where I had developed enough success where I need to come out of the closet on this topic and start talking about it because very few people that are succeeding are opening up about the pain, the struggle, the humiliation they went through as a learning disabled student. Wow, man. You, you, I don't know. I don't know that there's a stereotype, but you don't, you don't, you don't appear to have any learning disability You'd never know. at all. I, you wow. would have known in, you know, in my, in my early twenties, you would have known if, um, if we went to school, but you know, our, our saying in our home between my wife and I is we, um, we exercise our weaknesses and, you know, and, and strengthen our strengths. And in doing so you level everything up and that's a, that's a daily commitment. So um, I run in the morning before I interact with people because I have asthma. I exercise gotcha. my weaknesses, right? Yeah. I transfer numbers from over here into my phone or something because I want to transfer them in my head because every day it gets stronger yeah. and I make eye contact with people or the camera because I have attention disorders and I'm strengthening that muscle so nobody would ever guess. I love that, man. I, I absolutely love that. So, so you, um, you graduated college. Thank God. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you said, thank God. So you graduate college and, and what happened from there? Did you have instant, like massive success in the business world? And I, you know, I think like me, a lot of people, I, I struggled. I, my, I wanted to get into radio. The chances of getting a job in radio the way I wanted Monday through Friday on the number one station in the state, or maybe the number two, there's only two stations yeah. worthy of being on. Um, there, there's only six jobs yeah. morning, midday evening. Right. And so there's only six jobs in every major city. And I had a better chance of playing for the Phoenix Suns and I'm five, nine. So uh, I, I went and got a job at a radio station selling uh, radio ads. And the station was so bad that there wasn't a single, another salesperson in the entire department. It was just me and the GM. And I had every intersection in every city in Phoenix. And the beauty of it was I got massive reps I did 1,100 cold calls. I walked into businesses over a year. I got 1,100 no's and one yes. And that Um, yes bought my way onto the radio because I sold the package for a show that I was going to host. And I did that show. And then the number one station found me, KTAR, and brought me home where uh, I, I got to cut my teeth and cover major breaking news and just enjoyed it. Like, Ken, I had the coolest job. I... I was on a team of two that would be sent to presidential debates, inaugurations, um, the recount in Florida between Bush and Gore, the first anniversary of 9-11. We got to go and do all these really cool things. They basically paid us, Clear Channel, to walk through history and report live telling people what in the world is going on and what it means for you. And I enjoyed that beyond belief. And that was, that was the coolest thing. And maybe because I have the gift to gab, 
because the other gifts were weak at that time. But then I learned how to prep my shows and how to write my material and get my voice out there. And before I knew it, the content marketing revolution started in 2004. I had a website that I launched in 1999. And by 2004, the website was generating 36 million unique visitors a year on zero ad dollars. And a career was born, man. I got hired to go out to LA for iHeartRadio and Clear Channel to run digital for seven of their largest uh, talk shows. And that for me, a kid who grew up loving radio and trailblazing in digital marketing, it was like a dream come true until I burned out on LA traffic and everybody's thoughts on news and politics and entertainment. And I had to go on to do something else in my life that was more meaningful. Uh, You know, I hear I I lived in Seattle, man, and I I don't know. I think that Seattle traffic might be a little bit worse than L.A., but everybody's like, no, L.A. is the worst. I'm like, I've been in both, man. I think (laughs) Seattle is pretty bad. But my 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 daily commute to the Premier Radio Network was three hours round trip and I'd go a total of 30 miles. So 15 miles (laughs) each way. And you're basically sitting there. And my wife didn't know at the time, but can I mastered the art of driving on the 405 freeway with my knee (laughs) and because you got to learn something. And one day I'm on the freeway, a guy, we're sitting there like going nowhere. Guy gets out of his car, starts walking towards me. And my first thought is this is how it's going to end right underneath the Getty center. Dude takes out dude and guy gets out of the back of his, goes to the back of his car, opens up the, the tailgate of his car and there's a cooler in there and he starts piling in some tall can beers and he gets back into his car. I didn't know I was at an Ohio state tailgate party in the middle of the four Oh five. That's what it looked like in that guy's world. Oh my God. That's hilarious, man. So, so let's talk about, I mean, so you ended up, you carved your own path with yeah, clear th- channel. Clear channels huge. Yeah. I, I, I have, I've had a couple of careers already. And, but I've always wanted to be a speaker. My, oh, I'll tell you, one of the things my parents did that if there's anybody out there that is mentoring young people, my parents recognized that I had very bright spots and they nurtured those and helped support those weaknesses. But anytime the school would have a public speaking contest or the city or anywhere in LA, my parents would submit me. And then wow. I'd have to start working on that speech. And the next thing I know, I would win the, the, the class contest and then get advanced to the grade and win the grade and get advanced to the parent night. Like my whole life was, was shining on stages because it happened to be where I did my best work and was my most confident. And I wasn't reading, I was telling stories. And before I knew it, if you look back at my career, in every format, and it doesn't matter if it's on radio or in video or in text when I was writing articles or on the microphone at the core, what I've been doing is what my parents taught me and how they got me on the right path, which is to get out there and connect with people and tell powerful stories that move people to the next stage so you can bond with them deeper. And what a, what a wonderful thing for my parents. They would consistently wow. say, you may not be able to keep a checkbook, all right? Yeah. And that's okay. Because if you can follow your passion, you can always hire somebody to keep your checkbook or marry somebody that loves keeping a checkbook like (laughs) I did. And things will navigate themselves. Just continue to shine and grow and you'll be surprised where you go. And I just couldn't have been luckier for that type of leadership in my life. But your, your parents said you can marry somebody that can keep a checkbook. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people miss that. And I think that's a very, very good point, man. So many people try to be everything in everything. And, and what you're saying is don't, don't do that. Like find, find the, the, find what you're good at, work on that and bring other people into your life or your business that, that, Make up for your weaknesses. Ken, I'm a different kind of dude. I love challenges. When I was yeah. at the University of Arizona at the, uh, at the Delta Chi fraternity, I realized there was an opportunity for um, 
there was a treasurer position open. The treasurer is a free, you get to live there for free and eat all that food every day and go to all the party, you get to everything yeah. for free. So um, I, um, I ran for the, the treasurer position and I won without anybody knowing about my dyslexia Wow! and learn to manage those books and to be diligent about it and really exercised my weakness. And today, if I wanted to run the books, it'll take me some time to get up to speed on it. But I know that I can sharpen those skills to the point where I can do anything I need. My job is to be like a Swiss army knife. What tool wow. do I need? Can I pull out to get the job done? But at this point in my career, it's not economical for me to use tools that uh, you know, aren't the most effective. I need to be a Ginsu and surround myself with other Ginsus, but do know that I can pull anything off if I need to. That is incredible, man. So, so what, so out of college, what was your first job then the radio thing? I was a waiter oh. and still in my heart. I'm a waiter. I serve people and I love that. Like I was a waiter at in college and a bartender. When I got out of college, I waited tables at um, one of the Hyatt's prime properties, the Hyatt at Ganey Ranch in Scottsdale, Arizona. And in there they had, in that facility, they had a five-star dining room. Mm. And I learned fine dining, waiting and great wine and amazing food and how to interact with people that were on a completely different economic scale than me. Right. And how to convince and convert them. Convince and, and convert so, them to do what? buy wine, have dinner, have a great time. They were looking at me to be their trusted advisor, right? I know the menu. And so at the core of servicing mm. people and interacting with people with different personalities here, and then a whole nother group right here of different personalities and another group here, yeah. I learned how to switch between people and their energy and their needs, their want, their pain and their frustration. And really at the core, I learned how to serve people which is still the template that I use in serving my clients. It is all about customer service. And if you love it, if you love being of service, it actually becomes very easy. And before you know it, it's how you prefer to give to others. That's dude. I, what you just said is unbelievably profound. And I hope everybody listening got that. You started out as a waiter. Yep. serving others and you still apply that template to your business today because part of a waiter's job is to expect and anticipate what's coming next yep. part of being a talk show host and and being an investigative reporter which i was is yeah. anticipating what is coming next so in the waiter's mindset you're like all right they're about to have dessert I'm going to go and I'm going to start laying down the dessert spoon and I'm going to come out and sell coffee because who doesn't want coffee with dessert? Maybe an after dinner <laughs> drink, like in your brain, you start right. thinking about what's next. And right. when you're servicing people and being their trusted advisor in business, and it doesn't matter if you're servicing a, a CEO of a billion dollar tech company, or you're servicing the uh, chairman of the president's cancer panel, which is also a client of mine. Yeah. You anticipate what their next needs are and you be there to help guide them through it. And as long as you get your brain into that mindset, people will yeah. keep you around forever. Wow. That's so unbelievably important that everybody gets that. <clears throat> so, so you went into, um, well, you went from waiting tables to being on the um, radio, the radio. Ken, there would be times where I was getting paid so little on the radio because I negotiated poorly because I was so stoked to be on the radio. I didn't think about, I was just so stoked to be on the radio Yeah. and I got paid so little that I would go when I get, if, if I would do a, uh, a weekend show, I was on the radio six days a week. Yeah. I was producing and jumping in on the number one show on the air. Yeah. And I was also hosting my own show, like on a Saturday or a Sunday. Right. But then when I would wait tables at night, sometimes people would go as I'm like taking their order, they'd go, whoa, 
you sound familiar. Do I know you from somewhere? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure? And in my head, I know I just had an argument with John McCain like three hours ago. Please. Oh my God. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> Don't know. Don't, it's not me. It can't possibly be me, but it happened often because people uh, have intimate connections with somebody they listen to, yeah. they know their voice. And so I'd get called out on it. And um, and I found it humiliating, but anybody early in your career, you do anything and everything you can to not be too proud to yeah. pay your bills. Uh, that's that. Uh, <clears throat> so, so here <laughs> you were, you were an on air radio personality that waited tables at night. <laughs> I did it for years. Yep. That is so awesome, man. I love that. Wait, I got, Ian, I got you a, know what? That, I got a great I got, story for you. Well, I, and let me, and I want to hear it, but I want to make a point because this is so important. And this is a fundamental thing that look, when, when there are people that are on radio and or TV, I got a phone call this morning from my buddy, Glenn Morshower, who's been in hundreds of movies and, and TV shows we talked for a little bit and, and one of the, the, the things about that guy, and I see it in you is humility, dude, being an on air radio personality and waiting tables will definitely create a sense of humility. Yeah. Go ahead with your story. Sorry. I, I, just, I, had to I make feel that. like I got my ass kicked a lot. And, um, <laughs> and I think the, the choice is, you either try to forget it or you allow it to create character. And I hope it's created character for me. I, yeah. I, I was investigating a story in um, Arizona with my on-air partner for about a year. And it ended up being a billion dollar scandal. We uncovered maybe four or five of the biggest scandals in Arizona history in our four years on the radio. People, the establishment saw us as troublemakers, um, but we were just helping truth bubble to the surface. Wow. So we were working on a story that ended up implicating the Speaker of the House of Arizona, the most, most powerful person in the state, more powerful than the governor, and also a couple of local businessmen, a couple politicians. And my dad called me and he's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you exposed Jerry. And I was like, well, I mean, he's doing something illegal, dad. And dad goes, no, you don't understand. Jerry's my neighbor. We put the trash out together and he put our last names together. And it was clear to Jerry that my son's an idiot. And oh, then God. and then I go to work and I'm waiting tables. And the owner comes up to me and he's like, you're a moron. I said, what do you mean? He goes, <laughs> that Jerry comes in here. He's our best guest. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't oh, know the guy's man. name. I just knew he was involved in a billion dollar scandal. Oh. And this is what happens if you're an investigative reporter uh, focused on truth, sometimes you step in it. In fact, more often than not, you find yourself stepping in something that's going to upset somebody. That's how you know you're doing your job. Oh my God. Did you, <laughs> did you, did you get fired? <laughs> I didn't get fired from the waiting tables job. Um, my dad didn't fire me. He still talks to me to this day. He's the best man in my wedding. Wow. Um, and, but, but it was a scary touch and go moment. <laughs> I'm sure it was. There's my wife, truth bubbling to the surface. Right on, Joe. Yeah. So, so, um, okay. So, what? I I know you didn't stay in radio forever. How, how long did you do that? Uh, until 2007. In 2007, I left the Premier Radio Network to be employee number one of a uh, digital startup to compete against WebMD. And that is a great idea, especially in 07 when the economy was kind of collapsing. Go out yes. and start your own business. <laughs> Crisis sense. breeds opportunity every <laughs> single time. So um, here's what I know. Let me give you a little backstory. When I was at, at iHeartRadio and the Premier Radio Network, part of my job in the digital department was to go and look at the content and to report back to the head of the network every month on what content was outperforming the others. It's the early days of the content marketing revolution. Yeah. So right around 2003, 2004, I kept seeing a very replicatable trend inside of iHeartRadio's database of like 100 million viewers or listeners, excuse me. And what I noticed was audio wasn't the best performing content. And I'd share this with the network and he goes, yeah, that's fine, Todd, but our audience is 
are audio people. I go, yeah, but look at video. Video yeah. gets 10 times the result of anything else we're doing. Yeah. Maybe we should focus on video. And each time I get like slapped back, oh, go on, just go do your job. <laughs> and so by 2007, when I burned out um, on radio I, in LA, I decided to go full force into video because I realized what kept people from gravitating towards video sooner was bandwidth. People intuitively right. loved video over audio, yeah. but they just didn't have the bandwidth at that time. So by 2007, I was like, let's jump in. The iPhone came out. These devices are going to be ridiculous. Yep. And I started creating the first video medical encyclopedia on the internet. And I spent the next four years on uh, Southwest Airlines flying to every city, interviewing the world's top doctors by condition and then providing those interviews to patients so they could best advocate for themselves. And by 2010, I opened up my own video marketing agency. Oh my God. Wow, man. I started my digital marketing company in 07 as well. <laughs> Crazy, right? Yeah. It was the yeah. wild west. Like back was, then, yeah. I'm sure you spent more time teaching people about like I was teaching people about why their business needed a website. <laughs> Dude, the very first website I built, I freelance from 02 to 07. Right. Very first site I built was for a Mercedes-Benz dealership. And I, I, I knew the president and I said, I said, dude, you're not even on Google. Cause I said, you don't have a website. He's like, oh, we got, it was a, a, a landing page on the back of mbusa.com. And I said, that's not a website. That's a landing page. And you don't have a website and you need a website and you're not even in Google. And he goes, what's Google? Yes. <laughs> I said, Oh my God, Houston, we have a problem. Yes. So, so, you know, I get it, man. And yeah, you spent your time like convincing people that no, I know that there are people out there with the yellow pages saying you don't need a website. I get that. You know, and ironically now the yellow pages does nothing but sell websites, but it's crazy, right? Right. But, but so, yeah. I, so you were an industry, not interrupter, like you were a, a pioneer, man. That's, that's incredible. I, I didn't know any different. I don't know if it was incredible. I just knew that I, as I was learning, I was getting some results the results compounded, and before I knew it, there were there were people that were offering me money to do cool jobs that I I love what I do. I'm super passionate. I might have done those things. I'm embarrassed to say it. I might have done it for free because I enjoyed it so much, and right. I just kept learning along the way. And I think it's everybody's responsibility in your industry to be on an accelerated learning curve. Here's here's the deal. You don't have to be the smartest person in your industry because that's a birth blessing. It happens to one person and Lord knows it isn't me. <laughs> but you do have to have a commitment. If you want to grow, if you want to serve, you have yeah. to have a commitment to be the most resourceful person. And that is a choice. It is a daily commitment to learn from others. And the people that actually learn from others accelerate faster than anybody because they already know they don't have to be the fastest, just the, the brightest, just the most resourceful. And that's how you accelerate. You just keep, who's already done this? And how do I do that? And you just keep trying to figure it out. Brian Tracy talked about that. I, I don't know if you ever listened much to Brian or not, but he talked about uh, in the psychology of success, he talked about, you know, if you want to, you want to succeed, either find something that already exists and figure out a way yes. to do it better or improve it. Right. Or find a void in the marketplace and fill it. Absolutely. And, and you did That's, that, man. I did that. And I, but I love doing that. Like even when we hit this crisis, yeah, you know, you got to figure out where the void is, adjust for it. Yeah. And my wife and I were having this conversation uh, yesterday. My wife is the transformational guru at the Scottsdale Four Seasons for guests. Yes. So they come on wow. property, they get to go through a transformational experience guided by her. So we have these transformational conversations all the time at home. It's, it is um, one of our favorite things to do. And crisis breeds opportunity. In fact, in 2008, I had to have a heart procedure, so we filmed it. My wife filmed it in the operating room so we could educate patients, and that helped start the video medical encyclopedia. 
in 2011. Film your your heart procedure? Yeah. What? I trained her how to use my camera on the 51 Squaw Peak Freeway on the way to the hospital. And she had never picked up a camera before. And, but you know, there's opportunity there. It's like, how can you use this in a way that can turn it into something great? In 2011, when my stepmom was diagnosed with breast cancer, we launched Breast Cancer Answers in her honor with the doctors that I interviewed for the video medical encyclopedia. That went crazy viral, generating millions of followers and views. And then in 2013, when my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, we had all the answers we needed to advocate for ourselves because we saw the crisis, the opportunity, and jumped on it. And throughout life, we're entering this one right now, and it is just the beginning of the pain that people are going to feel because the economic impact is going to be lasting. I talked to a, I yep. interviewed a guy in China last week. And if you, if we understand where China is in this, China is 90 days ahead of us in the States yep. because they're already back going back to life. But if, when you interview him, you have an, I had an idea. I could see what the future is going to be like his crystal ball of his world of restaurants where 50% of them that are open are actually bankrupt. And they've got like two or three items on the menu and the menu switches every day. And the only reason their doors are open is because the landlords haven't kicked them out yet. And you can start figuring out where the opportunity is so you can best serve people. And it's about pivoting to prosper. And now it really is that time as businesses are trying to figure out how they can navigate safely through this crisis and squeak out some profit by serving people in the process. That's so cool to me. So what, you know, you, that that's almost a perfect segue. Um, with what's going on right now. And I, I totally agree with you. I've been saying like, you have no idea what what's coming. Like the, the economic impact is going to be huge. What, what advice would you give a, a restaurant owner that's just waiting right now just to start seating people back at their tables. Like what, what do you say to, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually a bit in shock because as a, a former waiter and bartender and friend to restaurant tours, yeah. I walked into my friend's restaurant on Sunday to get some to go food. And it was almost too much for me to see what his business looks like because I understand the pain. Yeah. as an entrepreneur. And I understand how close I've come so many times to having, to, by the way, there's nobody here, right? It's just I me. See. Yeah. Um, there's one person in one of those offices back there. I saw somebody walk by. Yeah. They're quarantined. They've, that's our head of sales, dude. You're not going home. You're there. <laughs> and, um, and so I, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's all about serving. Yeah. And if you think of the Ruth's Chris story, by the way, when I say Ruth's Chris story, I'm not talking about getting the, uh, the PPP loan to protect employees. Right. I'm talking about the origin story. Ruth's Chris origin story is there was a fire at the, um, in um, New Orleans, I believe. And Ruth Fertel just kept preparing food for the firemen. She seized the moment to serve those in need. And as a result, the local community, when life went back to normal, rallied and support her. And the rest is franchise history. Yeah. So um, where can we serve? Like in, in, my, in Los Angeles, my family's telling me that their restaurants are also grocery stores. Right. Right? Yeah. Where can you serve? Maybe if you're a high-end restaurant, which I think high-end restaurants have, if I can assess it, the hardest time recovering. Yeah. But also the fastest recovery because they can charge more and their customer base has already been used to that. Figure out how you can serve those people. In fact, maybe you do the deliveries. Right. Because if they see the owner doing the deliveries, instead of the guy from Grubhub, they're like, damn, this dude's digging in. Yep. I want to be there to support him. Maybe... I, I Right? I saw that with Chipotle. I, I, I remember, I remember we had a car in the shop. My wife was gone. I was starving one day. Couldn't figure out what to eat. 
I call we live in a very rural town out n- way north of Columbus. So there's no back then there was nobody delivering food here. So I called Chipotle and I'm like, hey, I'll give you an extra 20 bucks if you bring me lunch. Right. right? They wouldn't do it. And now the crisis hits and they're like, oh, hey, great right. customer. We'll deliver now. <laughs> it's right. like, you know, so crisis does, but it also makes you go, well, why wouldn't you do it before you buttholes? <laughs> right. Like, right. But it also gives us, it shakes us off of our foundation yeah. and gives us fresh eyes to evaluate opportunity. Yep. So to anybody that's listening If you have an established business, start thinking about how you can best serve those clients of yours and often get on the phone with them. Like what I've discovered, if I'm patient and I listen and I'm humble and I ask, my best clients will iterate my business for me, but I have to be sensitive sensitive enough to their feedback and humble enough to make those adjustments. Mm. So make sure you do that. In fact, circle around your best clients and dig in and serve them. And now more than ever, even if, um, even if, if you can't directly help them as a business, find out how you can service mentor, coach, advise, do research for them. Because if you seize the opportunity, they will find a place to help you stay in business. Yep. And, and we see it all the time. It's true. I just saw, and, and the big, big, some of these giant companies are not going to survive this. I just saw JC Penney is finally, I mean, I, I don't know, this might be the nail in their, in their coffin, man. I, you know, I, I, I think that the small businesses, I've been saying this since this started, look at my hair, dude. I, my hair is not this long ever. <laughs> You're like, I'm normally bald. <laughs> I was like my sideburns are growing over my glasses. And I told my <laughs> wife that I'm going to grow out the sideburns and then comb them over so I can have those bangs I always wanted. <laughs> it's going to happen. But I've, I've, you know, cause I've been doing video since Oh two Oh three. I started doing some video stuff before YouTube even existed. I'm putting yes. videos on websites and stuff. And, and, and I'm like, okay, if I were a hairdresser, and instead of making no money, I would do a, hey, I have a video um, consulting company for hair and your wife can cut your hair. I'll charge you 25 bucks or whatever. And I'll be on video the whole time walking her through it. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you do that? I, I mean, do it. Like it, it you got to get resourceful, man. Yeah. And you also have to figure out what the path to least resistance is. Yeah. Because- the customer's always in the path to least resistance. Think about water going down through a river. A lot of businesses become a rock thinking that the customers are going to flow over the rock and they're going to be able to service them. But if you can service the ones that are flowing and you know what their, where their resistance is, move away from their resistance, get into the flow. And before you know it, you're scooping up more revenue, more deals, more opportunities, but we have to be quiet enough. We have to be sensitive enough. Yeah. And we need to get away from all of our distractions long enough to see where that opportunity is. I, I remember sitting and, and people, I think people get so caught up and you, you, you tell me if you think this is correct. We get caught up in what we've been, what we've learned. And, and, and so we don't think that there's more available. And I, I was sitting with this, this friend of mine years ago when I first started my company and he's like, how, how are things going? I'm like, I'm so poor. I can't pay attention. Like I I can't even afford to eat. I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's a multimillionaire. Right. And he goes, um, he goes, Ken, let me tell you something. There is a guy right here in Columbus, Ohio, that makes over a million dollars a year picking up dog crap for other people. He goes to their house and picks up their dog's crap and he makes over a million dollars a year. Go figure it out. Right. That's what it's he not said. that hard. I'm like picking up dog crap. I'll never forget that because I, right. I'd never want to be that guy. Like, I don't want to go pick up dog crap, but B, you know, like just look for the opportunities. So, so now, okay. So you, um, 
started this this company. It sounds like you did incredibly well. Um, I'm sure there were struggles along the way, especially in that time period of just starting up. What happened from there? Because that's a nice office you're standing in. I'm sure it's not free. <laughs> Thank you. So what happened from there? We got our ass kicked many times. And every time we got back up and every time we got better, crisis brings that opportunity. And, um, and my wife and I had plenty of those conversations about, I don't know if we're going to renew the lease or we've got too much risk. And yeah. what we noticed is there's a lot of divine providence in our life. There's a mm. lot of helping hand that we don't see that's helping us. Like we're not being set up to fail. We're being given an opportunity to figure it out and to grow. And uh, I'll give you one story that I call the perfect storm. My wife and I, we use this term because that's what it feels like. Yeah. And in 2017, we had uh, in a nine week period, we had nine employees leave the company, not because we were a company in crisis, but because we were trailblazing in this space and six or seven of them got hired by one company away from us. That company is a big uh, juggernaut company that everybody listening would know from the mainstream media. And they hired away my entire video production team. We do 3000 oh. client videos a year. And at this point we had 400 videos in production and 15 video shoots on the schedule. And we had two teams that were flying out at, at the same time and servicing different parts of the U S Wow! and the net result of this is I could have weathered that storm. Mm. But at the same time, we had over $400,000 in late payments from billion dollar companies. And my wife and I were basically servicing the debt mm. and going broke quickly. Wow. And we got destabilized. But in the middle of that, we rehired a team that came in and supported us. We hit every single deadline and changed our contract terms. So we never to this point have had a late payment um, part of our business like we did ba back then. We might be in the 5% late payments now instead of 75%. Wow. And then grew our revenue and just started plugging ahead. And as soon as we got ourselves to the point where we were like, we got this, this ain't nothing, we're good. Then <laughs> the next crisis hit. And it happens time and again last year. Yeah. Right when we figured it out and we paid off all of our debt, um, last year, at the beginning of the year, uh, we kept pitching deals, but nobody was buying. Mm. By the end of the year, we ended up doing 76% more revenue because the last quarter was bonkers busy. And, wow. um, and that 76% more revenue ended up being what I thought in February, at the end of February, when I paid off all my debt, February, 2020. And I um, put away some money and I said to myself, this is going to be a nice chunk of profit. I'm finally going to be able to scrape off the table because my team and I hunkered down and we yeah. knocked down that work. And then like a wildfire pandemic came across the world and that chunk of change just became my safety net yeah. to protect all of these people from losing their job along with the 30 million other people. And it's like, you know, as an entrepreneur, you may never get past crisis, but you just learn how to get through crisis better the next time it comes and yeah. to be more profitable and to be of service along the way. Wow, man. <clears throat> so in 2017, when all that was going down, did you feel like we're not getting through this? Oh, a hundred percent, dude. I'd get on my morning run and I would get like two, a half block or so, two blocks from the house. And I would stop thinking I'm either going to have a heart attack <laughs> or I'm going to start crying right there on the yeah. side of the street. And I'm not laughing at you, but I know I can relate. Yes. No, oh I get God. it. I get it. Um, yeah. and, and like what grown man comes on one of these things and talks about crying in the middle of the street. <laughs> but, but that's the reality of what I went through. And I know there are other people that identify with it. Yeah. And, um, and yet we just plugged ahead. Here's, here's what my wife said. Remember, she deals with transformations every day. Yeah. She said, don't quit before the miracle. 
I love that, man. And I thought, wow, like, like, how do we know that this isn't going to turn into something amazing and we're going to go tell this story for the rest of our lives? And that's exactly what happened because our clients were through, like, we've never lost clients in 10 years because customer service and serving them and loving them and trailblazing with them. And if you can provide that service, you're going to have dips, but you're also going to be able to charge more. Yep. Because they know that you're going to get them there and they're going to come out like champions. I love that, man. Um, Weldon says your wife's job sounds awesome too. So, so, and, and Karen does have a question. I, I'd like to interrupt you and just ask this. Please. Do you have a morning ritual routine to keep yourself motivated, like affirmations daily, um, mapping day, et cetera? Karen, I love this question. And I think this is one of those topics that more people need to be discussing. So thank you for bringing it up. I feel like I just planted that question in the middle of this interview. (laughs) That's how much I love it, Karen. I know. All right. Every morning in our home, I will, when I open up my eyes, my wife will already be in the middle of her morning ritual. I didn't grow up in a ritual home. Every day was new. In the house that I live in, Every day is the same as it pertains to the daily rituals. So she gets up and does her meditation. Then she does her yoga. And somewhere in the middle of that, which is in about 445, I wake up after her, but early enough to make sure the coffee's still hot. And I start my ritual. And my ritual is 10 minutes of yoga while I'm drinking coffee. And then headphones in, I'm going to learn. I'm going to listen to a podcast or I'm going to listen to music depending on what my mindset is and I'm going to go on a run. I'm a fitness first guy because what I discovered is I'm a little bit abrasive or a little bit aggressive for (laughs) other people if I don't burn off my craziness before I start interacting with people. So I need to go on a run. I need to go through the mental transformation that happens in the run. The beginning of the run is... I don't know if I can do this. I don't really have the energy. And by the time I turn onto a major street, I end up transitioning to, you can do this. All right, you can do this. This isn't that bad. This is actually kind of easy. And then when I turn to my next street, the conversation in my head gets to gratitude. The whole Mm. goal of my morning ritual is I've got to end on gratitude. And the more flooded my body is, the more as I'm running, when I'm saying, when I'm, when I'm running, I'm saying, thank you. The closer I am to being who I want to be when I walk in the doors here and start inspiring my team. But I don't start that way naturally. I got to burn off all the craziness before I get there. Thank you for the question, Karen. (laughs) Dude, you are crazy. I love it, man. I freaking love it. So, so, um, Let's get to the, um, wow. I cannot believe we've already been on here 53 minutes almost. That's insane. So, so let's get to, let's get to the part that I want to hear about and I can be selfish cause it's my show. <laughs> I'm kidding. The part of, of, of you connecting with, with Tony Robbins, man, like that, that, that's an unbelievable story in a good way. I, I want to hear that. Well, about a year ago, um, somebody that I went to college with reached out to me and said that that um, they work for Tony and they've been watching my videos and want to know if they could do an introduction to his team. So I started interacting with their team and the next thing I know, I'm in Dallas on the same day that Tony is starting Unleash the Power Within and they tell me, why don't you go to UPW? So I go to UPW and I'm like, Instantly, in the middle of what feels like a rave with like 10,000 people, and I'm jump up, jump up, and jump around. And I'm having a blast, and I'm walking the coals. I'm walking fire coals like I'm walking on my my pool deck in Scottsdale, Arizona, like no problem, unleashing the power within. 40 days later, they invite me to go to Business Mastery, which is his business event. And I leave Business Mastery, and I'm so fired up. I come home. The day I come home, I burn out the turbocharger in my car. I get to the office and we started changing the energy in this place. And that ushered in 
the 76% revenue growth because when we changed what we looked at, the things started changing around us. Our clients responded to it. And when um, and I and then I started servicing Tony's company. Our agency did. And right around late February or early March this year, as the quarantine started, I got um, they reached out to me and said, Would you mind teaching your secrets? To, for remote selling and creating an on-demand buying experience to Tony's clients and create some videos for his website. Because and you said, really, hell no. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> like that dude's been my guru forever. So I spent the first week of the quarantine crushing my um, training material for Tony's audiences, which are now live on his website. Wow. There's a video series. It's also on YouTube. And... Um, and then th they got such great response from my podcast episode and my videos that they just asked me last week to do a internal training for his team. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to uh, do a, a training for all of his clients, a live webinar. I'm super honored. Wow. I'm more humbled about it than anything because my grandfather and my dad were Tony Robbins fans and I've got his his messages as blueprints in my head that I've relied on my whole life. So to have that opportunity to give back and to serve that community is like the coolest thing in the entire world for me. And I just enjoy it beyond belief. Thank you, Jill, for your comment. You know, you, you said this, Dr. Wayne Dyer is one of my favorite yes. authors of all time. And, and that's so true, man. What you just said it a, a few minutes ago. So, wow. By the way, we used to have Wayne Dyer on the radio with us. He'd come into the studio and he wow. was, I always thought of him like a kind of a surfer dude. Like I grew up in a beach town yeah. and that's the way he was. He'd come in with like OP shorts and flip flops and a polo shirt and a ball cap. Yeah. And in our office, let's see if I can point to it. Over there is Hold a on. Wayne Dyer calendar. Yeah. Right. Come on, Todd, right there is a Wayne Dyer calendar that's been on my desk. It's about the power of intention with a wow. different intention every day of the year. And that calendar is stuck on the exact day we had to quarantine and leave the office. And when I'm here, I look at it because there's a message on that date that's really important for me and my team because it's kind of like the office is a time capsule. So that's got to be um, an important life lesson for us. I got to unravel that one. What's the message? I can't, um, I've got it in my phone, but I can't find it in my gallery right now while maintaining eye contact with you. You want me to go run and grab it? Yeah, grab All it. Right, I'll be right, right back. Be right back. <laughs> this is awesome. I got, I got to know. I need to know what's on that calendar. I'm sure you guys can appreciate that. <clears throat> wow. 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 Power of intention. All right, let's do it. March 16th. By the way, Scottsdale went into quarantine after other people. March 16th was our last day in the office. Wow. Love is cooperation rather than competition and is the force behind the will of God. That's the power of intention. And if you can surround yourself with the right intention, things can blossom. An example is, Every single deal I ever did as an agency owner where I wanted the money more than helping them achieve their goals, that project didn't do too well. Yep. And every single time I'm about to sign a new deal, understanding the power of intention, I want to pick up the phone and have a little conversation with the primary decision on the maker on the other end to make sure we both align our power of intention. Because once that's aligned, amazing things can happen. But you don't say that. No, <laughs> but I think it in my head. <laughs> right. I picture myself aligning with their power of intention Yeah. because I don't want to stub my toe. I have one opportunity yeah. to make a name for myself with these people. And I want to hit a home run each and every time. That is so freaking powerful, man. That's so powerful. This, yeah. this is a great calendar for anybody. It sits on your desk. It is a daily reminder. Whoa, there it is. Power of intention, a calendar to use year after year. It has been on my desk since 2003. And when we moved into this office, it moved to the center of the office because it's that powerful. That is 
so cool, man. So, and let, let's, let me, let me end with this. Um, back in 2010, 2011, some, I don't know, somewhere in there, I had about 10 employees. Um, we had grown pretty rapidly like you, you've experienced. And, and, um, one day I'm on the phone in a meeting and, and one of my employees walks in this big dude <clears throat> that used to work for me. And he goes, Hey boss, uh, there's some dude out in the parking lot looking in the windows of your SUV. I'm like, we'll tell him to get the hell out of here. And he goes, well, I would, but he's got it blocked with his tow truck. <laughs> I was like, Oh God, no, please say it isn't true. He was there to repo my car. And I couldn't convince him otherwise. And, and, and all my employees were getting paid. I wasn't. And, and it was the most humiliating day of my life. I, I, I really felt like totally. man, this, this is, this is bad. I believe I cried that day. <laughs> no doubt. But <clears throat> so people are going through similar things like that right now. Right right now. And I know you've been, I don't know that you've been there where you got a repo, but, but I know you've, you've experienced struggles, man. Sure. And, and, you know, to somebody that maybe just lost their, their vehicle to somebody that may have their electric shut off tomorrow to somebody that's struggling to feed their kids, they can't figure out what to do. What words of hope and wisdom would you share with them right now in this moment? Love it. Don't quit before the miracle. There's an amazing transformational story ahead that you're going to create because you didn't quit. Now, I look at it like this. Who is going to win the quarantine? Like what part of you is going to win the quarantine and win the rest of 2020? When the year started, it was about um, there were all these corny blogs about 2020 is about clear vision, business vision, and your goals. We just lost virtually half of the year. What part of you is going to win this quarantine and what part of you is going to win the rest of the year? Decide on the story that you want to tell the rest of your life. Like for the next 20 years, what story are you going to tell? Are you going to tell the story about the lethargic part of you that packed on those COVID-19 pounds? Or are you going to tell the story about how you were frustrated and you snapped at family members because the, the confines of the home were too, too tight and everybody got under each, each other's nerves? Or are you going to tell the story about the peaceful, loving leader that grabbed a torch for your family or your team in a time of crisis and shepherded everybody to the other end? What story are you going to tell? Because I know my story. My story is the same story that I told in 2008 when I had a heart procedure or had to have one because of my condition. It's the same story I told in 2011 and 2013 when my stepmom and wife battled breast cancer. And it is the same story I am going to tell in this, in this one, that when I went through crisis, I became more loving, more compassionate, more centered, more focused, and I created results that turned my life around. And if you ask my wife, if you pulled her aside today without her knowing about this interview, and you <laughs> asked her about our breast cancer journey and what we went through, my wife would tell you, it was actually good for us. We came wow. out stronger. We were better people. We were a more loving couple. What story are you going to tell for the next 20 years about how you invested this time and how you turned your life around? Or will you tell the story about how you caved into your weaknesses and didn't grow, didn't prosper and didn't achieve? The choice is ultimately going to be yours. Dude, you're the first person in 250 interviews, by the way, on this show, you are the first person to give me chills at the end. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm serious. Ken, this is just what I have. I'm telling myself. I'm just teaching what I need to learn, you know, and as I'm going through it, I'm like, how can I yeah. flip this thing into a blessing, into something that will give other people hope and aspirations? And that's ultimately our choice. We're in charge of the story that we're going to tell. Wow. 
Dude, so awesome to have you on the show. I am so grateful, beyond grateful, that you, you. got up early. I guess not. <laughs> I was already up, bro. I already ran my three miles, crushed <laughs> it like a big boss. That is freaking awesome, dude. So um, stay with me if you would. I'm going to end the show. I want to thank everybody who shared this out. Todd, I want to thank you for coming on here and sharing some unbelievable nuggets of wisdom. If y'all didn't pick up anything from this interview, I'm not sure there's hope for you. <laughs> you might want to quit before the miracle. <laughs> That's terrible. I'm sorry. Oh, I love it though. Listen, thank you, Todd. Don't hang up on me. I'm going to finish this off. Thank you guys. Appreciate all of you. Have an awesome day. Don't quit before the miracle. I love that. See you guys later. Thank you so much.